the heart of the Buddhist teachings is freeing the mind from the very deeply conditioned habits of greed and attachment, of fear, of hatred, of the sleep of delusion and ignorance. And all the practices that we do, the practices of generosity, of sila, non-harming, practices of loving kindness and compassion, of concentration and mindfulness, all serve this end of freedom. And the Buddha expressed this very clearly. He said, the spiritual life does not have worldly gain, honor, or renown for its benefit, or attainment of virtue for its benefit, or attainment of concentration, or knowledge, or vision for its benefit. It is the unshakable deliverance of mind that is the goal of this spiritual life, its heartwood and its end. The unshakable deliverance of mind. So even as we engage in the various practices that we're doing, the various skillful means, we want to keep in mind what it is really all about. Although there are many teachings in the different Buddhist traditions, all of them converge in one understanding of what liberates the mind, what liberates the heart. In the Pali texts, the Buddha said, the supreme state of sublime peace has been discovered by the Tathagata, which is the term he used to describe himself, namely liberation through non-clinging. Elsewhere he said, this is the deathless, namely liberation through non-clinging. And these same truths of what liberates the mind was expressed in <coughs> the Mahayana and Vajrayana traditions. The great Indian adept Talopa said to his disciple Naropa, you are not fettered by appearances, you are fettered by attachments, so cut your attachments. So the message is the same. I'd like to read one teaching from a more contemporary Tibetan master. His name was Patrul Rinpoche. <coughs> and he was a wandering vagabond monk in Tibet. I think it was around the turn of the last century, the beginning of the 1900s. And he was renowned in Tibet for his great realization. But he lived very simply. He lived just as this wandering vagabond, uh, tremendously beloved by the ordinary people of Tibet. And he wrote this, you could call it a poem or a teaching. It's called Advice from Me to Myself. <laughs> so remember, he's, he's talking to himself. He's giving himself advice. Listen up, old bad karma patrol, <laughs> you dweller in distraction. For ages now, you've been beguiled, entranced, and fooled by appearances. Are you aware of that? Are you? Right this very instant, when you're under the spell of mistaken perception, you've got to watch out. Don't let yourself get carried away by this fake and empty life. Your mind is spinning around, carrying out a lot of useless projects. It's a waste. Give it up. <laughs> Thinking about the hundred plans you want to accomplish with never enough time to finish them just weighs down your mind. You're completely distracted by all these projects which never come to an end, but keep spreading out more like ripples in water. Don't be a fool. Just sit tight. You beat your little drum. You know, that little Tibetan, little Tibetan drum. You beat your little drum and your audience thinks it's charming to hear. You're reciting words about offering up your body but you still haven't stopped holding it dear. All this Dharma practice equipment, 
that seems so attractive, forget about it. If you let go of everything, 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 that's the real point. Even though you don't know how to practice, just let go of everything. That's what I really want to say. Pretty direct (laughs) and pretty simple, although not easy. What's important for us to realize in this teaching, (coughs) liberation through non-clinging. Cut your attachments, let go of everything. It's the same message. (coughs) What's important as we hear this is to realize that not clinging is not some state to imagine in the far-off future. It's not to think, well, maybe I'll practice for 15 years, 20 years, and then I'll accomplish this great state of not clinging. This is actually our practice now, in each moment. With whatever we're doing, whatever method we're using, we're practicing in the moment non-clinging. That's what it's about. (coughs) All the techniques, all the methods, all the teachings serve this end. (coughs) That is the mind of no clinging, the mind of no attachment. As we know, our unfolding experience keeps changing. Sometimes it's pleasant, sometimes it's unpleasant. But the practice of liberation is always the same. We're not practicing in order to have some better experience, however nice or wonderful it may be. We're practicing what the Buddha called the heart's release, really understanding that freedom is in the non-grasping mind. So then the question before us, is how do we accomplish this release of the heart? How do we accomplish the heart or mind of non-clinging? One way is through (coughs) an increasingly refined awareness of impermanence. And when we pay attention, we begin to see and understand impermanence on every possible level of experience. You know, from science, we know about the birth and death of stars and of galaxies. And on the smallest levels, the energy movements of subatomic particles. One of our friends uh, from the West Coast, Wes Nisker, teaching colleague and editor of The Inquiring Mind, He's very interested in Dharma and science. And this is from one of the articles he wrote, which will just give you a sense of the incredible possibilities in understanding impermanence. He said, inside the subatomic world, we find evidence of an impermanence that is so impermanent, it makes our ordinary reality seem frozen in time. In the subatomic world, time is sometimes measured in what scientists have named attoseconds, a millionth of a trillionth of a second. It takes an electron about one attosecond to travel all the way around a proton. Meanwhile, inside the proton, perhaps one level deeper into reality, an attosecond would be regarded as a long nap. Down here, time is measured in zeptoseconds, a billionth of a trillionth of a second. I think at some point, Wes writes, the physicists realized that they had entered a Marx Brothers routine, (laughs) where the jokes are coming so fast, you begin to see that it's all a joke. So when they started measuring things changing even faster, in trillionths of a trillionth of a second, Now talk about noticings per minute. (laughs) 
They started measuring things changing in trillionths of a trillionth of a second. They named it a yokto second. <laughs> Atto, zepto, and yokto. <laughs> By the, the time it takes for a quark to circle around inside a proton is somewhere between a zeptosecond and a yoktosecond. All you can do is smile and let go. Well, we may not quite be seeing things at the level of trillionths of a trillionth of a second. But there can be powerful moments of letting go through seeing impermanence even on much more conventional levels. You know, it's kind of interesting to at least reflect on how fast things really are changing. But even in our ordinary life, in conventional levels of perception, the reflection on impermanence can have a profound effect on how we relate to the world. Sometimes, you know, in walking through these woods here in New England, uh, throughout many of the forests and woods, we see these old stone walls, you know, miles and miles of stone walls. And sometimes we come across, you know, the foundation, the old stone foundations of these abandoned houses, and all that's left are the stone foundations. And just think about all of the labor and work that went into creating these walls and the lives of the people who lived in these houses. The people whose lives and life stories were as vivid and as compelling as our own. But where are they now? You know, all that's left are these stone walls and old foundations. We see the changes of nature, you know, the changes of the seasons. It's so, it's one of the really fantastic things about New England because the changes are so dramatic. You know, one day it's 60 degrees and the next day it's 20 degrees. What happened? We see impermanence in the changing experiences of our relationships, to the relationships we have, even the intimate ones, do they stay the same? Conditions are always changing. The changes in our work, in our bodies, in our minds. How many times in the world, or in the individual circumstances of our lives, you know, where everything's going along really smoothly, things are just going along day after day, We're leading peaceful, stable lives. And then something happens, and everything can be turned upside down. Our whole life can be turned upside down. It might be a natural disaster. You think of what happened with the tsunami a year or two ago. Great. I mean, many, many different disasters. Or war. Or an illness that comes upon us suddenly. Or an accident. These changes are not mistakes. It's the nature of things to change. It's just how things are. There's a very powerful teaching on impermanence in the depth of it, in the depth of understanding it. It's teaching from Deepama. And I think we've talked you know, a fair amount, so you probably know her life story. She was married very young you know, waited a long time till she could have children, and then two of her th- three children died, you know, as children. Her husband died, and so she was, you know, in this tremendous grief. She said that she, she literally almost died from the grief. She, she was practically bedridden for five years, and it was only, she was living in Burma at the time, and it was only when somebody suggested she go to a monastery and begin meditation And she had this amazing parami, so that very quickly she attained to these amazing levels of awakening and realization and concentration and all the powers of mind. So this amazing being who really had gone through the depths of loss and suffering. She was so filled with love and compassion, but also 
a very fierce compassion. So I just want to read something. This is from a book of her life, which some of you may know, called Deepama. It's a wonderful collection just of stories of her life and teaching. So this is from somebody, a student of hers in Calcutta when she was living there, a woman uh, named Sudipti. It's, it's really a very powerful teaching. So this is Sudipti recalling this. Sudipti said, when my son died in 1984, Deepa Ma shocked me with her words. It was a hard teaching I have not forgotten. Today your son has gone from this world. Why are you shocked? Everything is impermanent. Your life is impermanent. Your husband is impermanent. Your son is impermanent. Your money is impermanent. Everything is impermanent. There is nothing that is permanent. When you are alive, you might think, this is my daughter, this is my husband, this is my property, this is my building, this car belongs to me. But when you are dead, nothing is yours. Sudipti, you think you are a serious meditator, but you must really learn that everything is impermanent. That's an amazing teaching to somebody who had lost her son. But for Deepama, this wasn't philosophy. She herself had gone through the suffering of that experience. And she didn't say, why are you sad? She said, why are you shocked? You think you are a serious meditator, but you must really learn that everything is impermanent. You know, we need to understand this on the deepest levels. It's not that we can hold out some little place of security and cling to that and have attachment to that thing. Well, that's safe from change. Everything on every level is subject to this great truth. We can refine our understanding of impermanence, of change, in our meditation practice. You know, we see it if we're paying attention from this perspective all the time. On a very simple level, have you noticed how at times we might have an easy, concentrated sitting? The bell rings and we get up and think, oh well, I'll just pick it up (laughs) in the next sitting. And we come in next time, and so we're restless, and the body hurts, and there's boredom, whatever. Conditions change. Or it might be the other way around. We might be having a really difficult sitting. Oh my God, it's going to be this way for the rest of the day, the rest of the retreat. Come in the next sitting, everything settles, everything's in balance. Conditions are always changing. We can refine our understanding, our direct perception of the nature of change. Because we need to go from the conceptual level to seeing it directly and vividly. We can refine this perception of change if we start paying attention not only to what it is that's arising in the moment, which we've been emphasizing, be mindful of thoughts or sensations of the breath, or sounds, but instead of simply being mindful of what is arising, also be aware of what happens to that object. A sound arises, what happens to it? A thought arises, what happens to it? A sensation arises, what happens to it? If we engage mindfulness in that way, paying attention to what happens to what's arising, we will see for ourselves that everything is changing. Nothing stays the same. Sounds disappear, sensations change, one breath follows the next. And each of these experiences is itself not a single thing. Each experience is like a current or a flow of even more minute changes. You know, when we're really with the breath, one in-breath, it's not one thing. 
so many different sensations within a breath or a movement. We're taking a step. Step is not one thing. So many different sensations. Now listen to the bell, the sound of the bell. And how many changes within that one sound? Somehow I think the whole Dharma is right here in listening to the sound of a bell. You know, if we could really just listen. What could we possibly hold on to if we're really there in just the momentariness? We just see the emptiness, the insubstantiality. There's nothing there to hold on to. So can we pay attention in that way to all experience? It's all like that. On all of these levels, through a direct, intimate, close experience of impermanence, seeing it, reflecting on it, whether it's the conventional level, whether it's the moment-to-moment level in our meditation, whether you have supernormal vision and see subatomic particles, on every level, seeing that whatever arises, whatever arises has the nature to pass away. When we see that all experience is just part of an endlessly passing show, it's like the current of a river or water falling over a waterfall. Can we hold on to anything? When we see that that's how things are happening, we're not creating that. This impermanence is the nature of all phenomena. Then the mind lets go. It's this perception that deconditions the grasping and clinging in the mind. Now the liberating power of this, the liberating power of the truth of impermanence, was expressed in a rather startling statement of the Buddha. He said that it's better to live a single day seeing the momentary arising and passing of phenomena than to live a hundred years without seeing that. So I find that pretty remarkable. He's saying it's better to live a single day to see this momentary arising and passing of phenomena than to live a hundred years without seeing that. So what is that saying to us about what we most value in our lives? And what does it say to us about the liberating effect of seeing this truth of change? Because we may have all kinds of experiences in life and many wonderful and pleasant experiences But if we're not seeing clearly and directly this truth of impermanence, (coughs) we stay trapped through the power of clinging and attachment. If we're interested (coughs) in freeing the heart and mind, the Buddha, in many of his teachings, gave very explicit guidance. (coughs) He said, Whatever feelings arise, and feelings are arising moment after moment, whatever feelings arise, whether pleasant or unpleasant or neutral, abide contemplating impermanence in those feelings. So just take a moment. As you hear those words, take them in and just reflect for a moment on what he's actually telling us to do. Because it's so easy to hear this and to hear it as, oh, this is the Buddha's teaching on impermanence. And not really take it in as an instruction for ourselves. And he's saying so directly, whatever feelings arise, which are arising every moment, whether pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, abide contemplating impermanence in those feelings. Really see how they come and go, moment after moment. Contemplate the fading away, the letting go of those feelings. Contemplating thus, we do not cling to anything in this world. 
When we don't cling, there is no agitation. When not agitated, we personally attain Nibbana. What a direct teaching about awakening, about enlightenment. Contemplating the impermanence, the fading away, the letting go, moment after moment, of whatever feeling arises. That's really clear. And this is what we're practicing. It's important to understand in this teaching that it's not a question of pulling away from experience. Rather, it's learning to not hold on. You know, and it's the difference in the English words we use, the difference between detachment and non-attachment. Because detachment could imply a withdrawal, a pulling away, an indifference with respect to what's happening. And that's not what this is about. It's not about detachment, it's about non-attachment. It's not about pulling away, it's about not holding on, not grasping. So in case we're still missing this, even though it's pretty clear, the Buddha, out of his great compassion, went a step further and he said, okay, liberation through not clinging. Don't cling. Everything is changing. Really see that. But in case we're still not quite getting it, he pointed out those areas in our lives where we commonly do cling. So he's saying, okay, pay attention in these areas because most likely we're going to be clinging in one or all of them. So he just gives us a little help. Where do we cling? Where do we forget? Very commonly, we cling to the pleasure of sense objects. You know, it's that activity of the wanting mind. We like pleasant experience, pleasant sights and sounds and smells and tastes and sensations and thoughts and emotions. We very typically cling to these pleasant sense objects. In meditation, how often do we simply get lost you know, in reveries or fantasies? You know, it's a pleasant way to spend the hour. And we're just kind of lost <laughs> in this. But what's even more remarkable, even when thoughts and memories are not pleasant, we seem to enjoy the dubious pleasure of being lost. You know, just being lost, being distracted, somehow gives us pleasure. You know, we become, ex- we become absorbed in the dynamics of our own fascinating story. But for how long? <laughs> you know, just watching this reveals a lot about the power of desire and addiction and fascination. Just this desire for sense pleasures. I had a striking example of this. It's a little embarrassing. This goes back years when I was practicing in India, you know, first getting into the practice, but I'd been there a few years already. And so I had been there and my meditation was going quite well and mind was pretty concentrated and mindfulness and a lot of clarity. And, you know, sometimes Occasionally, not that often, but sometimes we have these sittings where you think, ah, enlightenment any moment. You know, it's just everything is so vivid and clear and bright. And I was practicing at the Burmese Vihara in Bodhgaya at that time. And I think, as I've mentioned before, the, the food was pretty basic, really basic. And sometimes in the evening they would serve just tea and these really small bananas. I mean, they were really, literally, about that big. You know, so they served tea and two bananas. And so I'm sitting in this wonderful state, about to get enlightened. The tea bell rings. 
Now you'd think presented with the choice. <laughs> Banana, this big. <laughs> or enlightenment. <laughs> it's amazing the power of desire in the mind. <laughs> Almost always. Not every time, but almost always, I'd go for the banana. <laughs> it's a powerful force, even when it's about a very small thing. With recurring fantasies, or patterns in the mind where we get lost again and again, a really helpful note that I found, which is a reminder up front of the impermanence of it, is to plant a big sign in the mind, just as we're beginning the reverie, dead end. It is a dead end. It's a road that doesn't go anyplace. You know, so we're going to go down this road, lost in some memory, in some fantasy, in some desire, and we're going to get to the end of the road, and it hasn't gone anyplace. We're going to just have to come back and begin again. So if we put the sign up right at the beginning of the road rather than at the end, you know, where we say, oh, dead end, we don't even have to bother going down. Now, all of this doesn't mean that we don't act in the world or that we don't fully experience pleasant things when they come in our lives, because they do come. We're not closing off our senses. But can we be present in a really full and open way without clinging, without attachment? without desire becoming the driving force in our lives. This is the wisdom that can grow in us when we see over and over again the changing nature of all phenomena. Now, in addition to pleasant sense experience, we also can cling, and this is an occupational hazard for meditators, we can also cling to pleasant meditative states. You know, these are even more seductive. When things are going well and there's a lot of light and rapture and calm and concentration and happiness and joy, they're really pleasant states, even the factors of enlightenment themselves. At a certain stage of practice, the very factors of enlightenment, of awakening, are called corruptions of insight. The very things that we're practicing for become corruptions of insight because there's such a liability to become attached to them. Right? In the experience of them, we forget that it's about liberation through non-clinging. It's not liberation through having a certain state liberation through non-clinging. This is a teaching from Dilgo Kense Rinpoche, one of the great, great Tibetan masters. He said, if we have interesting experiences, either during or after meditation, we should avoid making anything special of them. To spend time thinking about experiences is simply a distraction. Let me repeat. <laughs> to spend time thinking about experiences is simply a distraction. These experiences are simply signs of practice and should be regarded as transient events. We should not attempt to re-experience them because to do so only serves to distort the natural spontaneity of mind. So we really need to be watchful for this. This is a real trap in the meditative journey. You know, we do have at different times special experiences and interesting experiences, and our mind becomes fascinated with them. And we forget 
liberation through non-clinging. It's not about experience. Okay, there's one little, we might call it a mantra, a little Vipassana wisdom mantra. It doesn't matter to what you don't cling. So you don't, did you get that? It's a little awkward construction. (laughs) It doesn't matter to what you don't cling, which means you don't have to wait for some special experience to not cling. You might as well not cling now (laughs) with whatever's arising. So we're not practicing in order to get something else in order to not cling. It doesn't matter to what you don't cling. So don't cling now. I think one of my colleagues mentioned this wonderful Thai laywoman teacher, Upasaka Ki, who grew up and you know, had a tremendous, tremendous passion for Dharma practice and went off and lived just, I think, with a couple of relatives, you know, in a, like a hermitage. And then as her realization uh, you know, became stronger, she became quite well-known in Thailand. And there's a wonderful book of her teachings called Pure and Simple. And she's like, she's just like this Zen master in kind of her clarity and incisiveness. It's a wonderful book. So she wrote, if we want to see the real essence of the Dharma, we have to look deeply, profoundly. Because it's just that sentence. You know, I've mentioned the difference between being relaxed and casual in our practice. If we want to see the real essence of the Dhamma, we have to look deeply and profoundly. So that's with everything, in our sitting, in our walking, in our moving about. Then it's simply a matter of letting go all along the way. The theme of non-clinging covers everything from beginning to end. So that's it. As we move through the day, whether we're sitting, whether we're walking, whether we're eating, whether we're taking a shower, just as we move through the day, look deeply, profoundly, really feel the moment. Not in a tight way, it's very relaxed. But it's not casual. We're really there. We're really connected. And then understanding that what we're practicing all day long is non-clinging. It covers everything from beginning to end. Okay, so it's the Buddha pointed out that we can get attached to sense pleasures. We can get attached to meditative states, to Dharma insights. We need to watch out for that. He also spoke of how we very frequently become attached to our views and opinions about things. We're very attached, often, to being right. And we often have opinions regarding things we know nothing about. (laughs) But it does not stop us from having an opinion. Have you noticed that? I'm sure you've noticed it about other people. (laughs) And I had a striking example of this, which this is years ago. It goes back to when I was first came back uh, to this country from Asia and was teaching at Naropa Institute. This was in the summer of 74 and 75. And the great Tibetan teacher, Dujam Rinpoche, was visiting. And he was one of the heads of uh, one of the four important lineages of Tibetan Buddhism. So great, realized, enlightened master. And there was a poster announcing his visit and his talk. And it said, Dujam Rinpoche in the talk, and then it said, Incarnation of Sariputra. Now, Sariputra was the chief disciple of the Buddha. And from the Theravada point of view, when you're enlightened, you don't come back. And I had spent the previous 
I don't know, 20 years, 15 years immersed in that teaching, there's no way Sariputra came back. <laughs> but here's Dujam Rinpoche, incarnation of Sariputra. So my mind kind of went on tilt. I didn't know how to reconcile those two views. And then, a certain moment, a sudden moment of Satori, and I realized I didn't have a clue. I had no idea whether he was the incarnation of Sariputra or not. All I knew was that one body of teaching said, Arhants, don't take rebirth. And I knew that, at least on the poster, <laughs> it said. But I realized I didn't know. From my personal experience, I didn't know. And when I realized I didn't know, I also realized I didn't have to have an opinion about it. And suddenly the whole, my whole heart just opened and released and got eased. I didn't have to have an opinion about something I didn't know. You know I could appreciate what the different teachings said, but I didn't have to cling to a viewpoint. Very freeing. Clinging to views. It's not that we don't have views, we do, about a lot of things, but not clinging to them. That's where the suffering is. It's also wise to keep an open mind about things we think we do know, you know, and maybe actually had an experience of. It's very easy to develop pride about knowledge or pride about spiritual insight, you know, where we m may have some genuine realization. But if we get attached to it, it really becomes a limitation. The attachment and pride can close us off to other points of view, other possibilities. You know, and when we cling to our own insights, or cling to our own understanding, cling to our own opinions, it really plants the seeds for a very deep sectarian conflicts. And we see the danger of that in the world. Now, how much harm is being done right now and through the ages? How many people have been killed you know, over this attachment to a religious viewpoint? So this is a very important uh, thing to understand. I had a great lesson in the possibility of a different way at a Buddhist Christian conference that I attended at Gethsemane Abbey, which is the abbey in Kentucky where Thomas Merton lived and wrote and was a hermit. And at this conference there were 25 Buddhists and 25 Christians, uh, mostly Benedictines and Trappists. Uh, and His Holiness the Dalai Lama was there. And at the end of the conference, and there was a lot of talk back and forth and expressing different viewpoints and you know, different theological understandings. At the end of the conference, the abbot of Gethsemane was you know, conducting the closing <coughs> ceremonies. And he said that the most moving and meaningful thing that had happened during that conference was one day he was walking down the corridor outside of the meeting room and he was walking behind uh, His Holiness. And at the end of the corridor there was a statue of the Virgin Mary. And so the abbot was just walking along and the Dalai Lama was ahead of him. And he saw the Dalai Lama stop in front of the statue and bow to the statue of the Virgin Mary. And he said that was more meaningful in terms of this interreligious dialogue than all of the words. You know, that His Holiness could just express respect in this deeply meaningful way for a representation of another whole tradition, another whole theology, 
another whole set of metaphysics. But the Dalai Lama was paying respects to what was of value in that tradition. He wasn't doing it for show. He didn't know anybody was watching. And it struck me because I realized it never would have occurred to me. You know, I, I would have said, oh yeah, that's from another tradition. And so the Dalai Lama's expansiveness and inclusiveness was such a great teaching. This is when we're not attached to our viewpoint. You know, it's not that His Holiness is not thoroughly steeped in the wisdom of Buddhism. You know, and if you've ever heard any of his talks, you know that he is. But we don't have to cling to it. We don't need to be attached to it, even as we're practicing and living the teachings. Okay, the deepest attachment we have, the deepest area of clinging, is clinging to sense pleasures and to meditative states, clinging to views and opinions. Of course, the deepest attachment we have that conditions our lives is clinging to the concept, the view of self. The idea that there is someone behind the process to whom it is happening. And this constructed reference point of self, it's a constructed viewpoint. It's a reference point of I, of self. It happens when we don't look carefully at the impermanent, composite nature of experience. And so, by not looking carefully, we strengthen the habit of identifying with various aspects of arising experience. It's not that the self is there and we have to get rid of it. It's not there in the first place. We simply have to stop identifying with the different aspects of experience. We need to stop creating the sense of self. What do we identify with? And different of us have talked about this in different talks and will continue to do so. We commonly identify with the body. You know, wake up in the morning, look in a mirror. Oh, it's me again. You know. But what are we seeing? We're, we're seeing a reflection of the body. Right? We're not seeing a reflection of our minds. We're seeing the body, and yet there's that moment of recognition. Yeah, that's me. A friend of mine had laparoscopic surgery quite a few years ago, and they actually <laughs> make a video. You know, they do it also with this miniaturized video camera. And so, <laughs> at the end of the surgery, uh, she was presented with this video. She had no interest in looking at it, but I did. <laughs> it was fascinating because there was the journey inside the body, you know, all the organs and the muscles and the blood. And when we see the body in that way, we're not so likely to take the gallbladder as being self, you know, or the liver as being self, but it's all wrapped up very nicely in skin. So it's a nice package. Oh yeah, this is me. It's all because we're not seeing. We're just not seeing the true nature of it. We're deluded. Ramana Maharshi, the great Indian saint, he said, to identify with the body, to identify with the body as being self, as being I, and yet seek happiness is like attempting to cross a river on the back of an alligator. So I would just contemplate that a little bit. (laughs) And what's so amazing is that it's what we do. You know, we do think our happiness somehow is connected, is tied up in our identification with the body, because we're not seeing it and we're not paying attention to the real nature of it. You know, we create the felt sense of self when we're identified with and lost in thoughts. We've talked a lot about this. You know, I'm thinking, I'm planning, I'm judging. We just 
create a sense of self when we identify with all the stories we have about ourselves, about other people. How many stories have you had about your fellow yogis or about the teachers or about... And what's so amazing about our minds, we could be standing online at the supermarket, somebody we've never seen before, and now we could have a quick little judgment about them. You know, we don't know anything about them. And yet the judgment comes, the story comes, and if we're not paying attention, we believe it, and it creates the sense of I. Even more than with thoughts, we create a felt sense of self when we're identified with emotions. You know, different emotions arise. We're happy, we're sad. You know, there's excitement, there's boredom, there's anger, there's joy, whatever. But instead of simply being with the emotion as a mind state arising out of conditions, arising and passing away, we identify with them. I'm angry, I'm sad, I'm happy, I'm joyful. So we build a whole superstructure of self on top of some momentary changing conditions. Whatever emotion is arising, it's only a mind state. That's all it is. It may be intense. It may be strong. It may have all kinds of uh, feeling tones to it. But we need to see it's just something arising out of conditions, like a weather system passing through. Can we stay open to it? Can we stay open, relaxed, without identifying, without attachment, without clinging? Our life gets a lot easier. Now, the most subtle level of attachment and identification that gives birth to the sense of self is the subtle identification with consciousness, with awareness. Even as we're aware of all these arising phenomena, sensations and thoughts and emotions and sounds, and okay, so we can sit back and really be with all these, understand that they're changing, get glimpses of not-self, still very often is the identification with the awareness. Well, I'm the one who's knowing all this. And so we create the felt sense of the observer, the witness. This becomes a very interesting place of investigation to see how we can make of awareness something. We make awareness the home. We make awareness our home, and then self settles right into it. So this is very subtle. Uh, we don't often see how this is happening. So different traditions use different methods to cut through this identification with awareness, with consciousness. Now sometimes we cut through it by seeing the impermanent nature of the knowing an object arising. It's a pairwise progression, moment after moment. Knowing a sight, a sound, a smell, knowing a thought, knowing an emotion. Every moment it's knowing an object, knowing an object, knowing an object. That's what's happening. And when we settle into the mindfulness of that flow of impermanence, of knowing an object, at times we get a very clear view of the impermanent nature of consciousness itself. That, that too is arising and passing, moment after moment. We can also cut through identification with awareness by looking at the mind itself, looking at awareness itself. There's a great mystery, because when we look for it, there's nothing to find. And yet, the knowing is happening. So it's quite amazing. We look for it, you know, just in a moment of hearing or feeling a movement. Okay, the movement is there and it's being known, but known by what? When we look for the what, there's nothing to find, and yet the knowing is there. 
this one little Zen exchange. This is a Zen dialogue between Bodhidharma, who was the great uh, Indian master who brought Buddhism from India to China, you know, and is considered the, the founder of the Zen lineage in China. And the person, Hueco, who became his disciple. And Hueco was suffering a lot in his life. And he had heard of Bodhidharma, and Bodhidharma was supposedly sitting in this cave for seven years. You know, and so Hueco comes and says, please teach me the Dharma. I'm suffering. You know, he said, please teach me the Dharma seal of all the Buddhas. And Bodhidharma says, the Dharma seal of all the Buddhas cannot be obtained from someone else. Hueco says to him, my mind is distressed. Please pacify it with your teaching. Because you can kind of feel the, the heartfelt quality of this seeking. So Bodhidharma says, present me your mind and I will pacify it. So Hueco says, I've searched for my mind, but I can't find it. So really, look, uh, this, is, this is an enlightening dialogue. You know, so we really need to look ourselves. Present me your mind and I will pacify it. So Hueco says, I've looked for it, but I can't find it. So what would that mean for ourselves? Okay, we look for awareness, we look for the mind, there's nothing to find. I've searched for my mind, but I can't find it. Bodhidharma, there, I've pacified it. You know, that's really a profound exchange. But we need to internalize this. We need to experience this for ourselves. We look for the mind, there's nothing to find. And in the not finding, in that moment of not finding, it's already pacified. That is a moment of not clinging, of non-grasping. There's nothing there to grasp. So liberation through non-clinging. We accomplish this through seeing of impermanence, through seeing and exploring all those areas where we do cling, and through the very direct experience of selflessness. And the Buddha summed all of this up in one essential teaching. I mean, if you don't remember anything else from the talk tonight, if you remembered this, it would be enough. The Buddha said, nothing whatsoever is to be clung to as I or mine. Nothing whatsoever is to be clung to as I or mine. This is really the Buddha's profound instruction to us. It's not a philosophic statement. It's something for us to practice, to realize. Nothing whatsoever is to be clung to as I or mine. This is our practice moment to moment. Nothing whatsoever is to be clung to as I or mine. Practice moment to moment. This is the practice of freedom. I would just like to close with a description of, you could say, an awakening experience or an enlightenment experience of the abbess of a Zen nunnery. And her name was Tejitsu. And it's from a book called Women of the Way discovering 2,500 years of Buddhist wisdom uh, by Sally Tisdale. So this is describing this nun's experience, the abbess of the nunnery. Tejutsu saw that what arose, she saw what arose, abided, and fell away. She saw that knowing this arose, abided, and fell away. Then she knew there was nothing more than this, no ground, nothing to lean on stronger than the cane she held, nothing to lean upon at all, 
and no one leaning. And she opened the clenched fist in her mind and let go and fell into the midst of everything. So can we open the clenched fist in our mind, let go, and fall into the midst of everything? So let's just sit for a couple of moments. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.